You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Luke, chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aurora. Uh, Well, today in this passage, this encounter, uh, we see probably the ultimate question good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, You recognise the guy who asked this question. He's often known as the rich young ruler because that's how he's described in some of the other Gospels. And this is one of the most well-known encounters that Jesus has in all of the Gospels. And today I want to think about what makes this man ask that question and then what makes him walk away from Jesus when Jesus gives him the answer. First of all, let's look at this question in detail. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because I think this question tells us a lot about this man. First of all, it shows us how earnest he is. He might be young, but he's serious. He's a dedicated and pious young man. He wants eternal life and is pursuing it. But this question also shows us that he hasn't found it yet. He wants eternal life, but he's not sure that he has it yet. See, sometimes in the Gospels we see people approach Jesus full of arrogance. In Luke 10, we get a a lawyer steps up and asks a very similar question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But we're told that he asks this to put Jesus to the test. You see, he's taunting him, he's mocking him. But I don't think this bloke here in Luke 18 is the same. He addresses Jesus as good teacher out of respect and a desire to learn. He comes as a pupil to a teacher, eager to discover something because he knows that he needs to learn more. He doesn't have it all. He's restless and he wants to find peace. And yet this question also reveals why he hasn't yet found that peace. 
You see, he thinks you can earn eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He imagines that this is in his hands. He thinks that he can, that he must prove himself to God to be accepted by him. Now, this is actually a very familiar thing. Lots of people imagine this is how it works. You see, most religions are about doing things. Whatever your God is, whatever your goal is, you have to work your way there. That's how it is in Islam. You try to keep the five pillars. That's how it is in Hinduism. To get to nirvana or moksha, you must attain knowledge and show your devotion. In fact, that's even how many people in churches think as well. They approach Christianity as a set of rules that must be kept and ceremonies and rituals that you complete. It seems to be inbuilt within us that we have to do something to earn eternal life. But it's not possible. Why? Because we can't do it. We just can't do it. It's not that God doesn't have rules. It's just that we can't keep them. And that's what Jesus wants this man to understand. You notice how he does it as well. He goes through the Ten Commandments, verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. He's inviting the man to assess himself, to ask, have, have I kept these rules? And at first the man is very confident, verse 21. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now this might seem arrogant to us, but I think he really means it. You see, the Jews of this era genuinely believed that they could keep the law perfectly. In fact, there was a common belief that if all Jews kept the law perfectly for just one day, then God would send the Messiah. And that's because they imagined that the commandments were uh, something that you just had to do outwardly. That's what God was looking for, outward obedience, things that you do. And so much of Jesus' ministry then is is spent trying to help them unlock this, to, to look underneath this, helping them see that God looks not only at our actions, but our thoughts and our motives. He looks at the heart. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough just to avoid killing people. God sees even our hateful speech and our thoughts. So he's wanting them always to go deeper. And that's what he's going to do now with this man as well. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, this is really where we see the genius of Jesus. I said before that Jesus went through the Ten Commandments with him, but you'll notice that he does it in a weird way. He goes through the second half of the Ten Commandments, but then leaves out one of them, the tenth, do not covet. Now, this is the one that he now brings into the picture. He doesn't say it explicitly. He doesn't say, you shall not covet. Instead, he comes up with a scenario, a choice that will reveal it. You see, out of all the Ten Commandments, the Tenth is the one that's most obviously internal. They all speak to the heart, but particularly this one. See, some of the Jews could make a case that they were keeping the others. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. But it was harder for them to feel good about the Tenth Commandment. Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, could anyone honestly say they have never wanted something that was not theirs? Have you ever felt dissatisfied with your lot and resented that? Then you've coveted. And yet all of this is internal, so no one else can see it. You can keep it hidden, maybe even to yourself, But now Jesus comes up with a test that will expose it. He asks the man to give up his possessions. 
And really what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the sin to the surface. He's saying, all right, you think that you've kept the law, so prove it. Show me how you've kept the 10th commandment. In in effect, Jesus is saying, if you're really pious, if you're really as good as you think you are, you'll be willing to give this stuff away. And if you're not, then you're covetous. You're greedy. You're unable to live without the things that you want. You're not as righteous as you thought you were. And, of course, the man is exposed. Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He, he can't do it. He can't give it up. And so he's exposed as sinful. Now, it's not that this man can keep all of the rules except this one. It's that this commandment shows what it takes to keep any of them. Jesus is exposing all of the man's sin by exposing this one sin. He can't earn eternal life because he's sinful. And then there's this really sad moment as the man turns away. Jesus points out how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and the people say, then who can be saved? And it's a desperate comment. You see, in the ancient world, wealth was a sign of virtue. If you were rich, it was a sign that you were godly, that you were doing the right thing. This man was rich, and so people would have assumed he was godly. It's also possible that he was one of the leaders in the synagogue, or maybe even a Pharisee. And so when Jesus turns him away, people would have been shocked. He can't be saved. Then who can be saved? What hope do we have? But then Jesus says something wonderful, verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It's not possible for us to save ourselves, but God can save us. You see, Jesus has done what we could not do. Did you notice that weird little moment at the start of the encounter? The man calls Jesus good teacher, and then Jesus responds quite curtly, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It sounds like he's just rejecting flattery, but he's actually making a point. Don't call me good unless you understand what that means. You see, of course, the, the man is more right than he realizes. Jesus is good because he is God, and because he is good, he can give eternal life. So we are not good. We cannot keep the commandments. We cannot earn eternal life, but Jesus can. Jesus was good. He lived a perfect life, not just on the outside, but on the inside, not just with his actions, but with his words and his thoughts. And now this righteousness is given to us. We are accepted by God as perfect if we come to him and ask for it. All we need to do is come to him. So the thing we must not do is imagine that God won't accept us, that when our sin is exposed, we imagine we still have to try and earn our way back to him to fix it up ourselves. We have to get ourselves right before God will accept us. But that's not what God is asking. He's asking us to come as we are. Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so really Jesus is saying, yes, you're not as as good as you thought you were, but that's okay. All you need to do is come and follow me. But, of course, this is the great tragedy. The man doesn't follow him, not because he's embarrassed, or ashamed, or even that he disagrees with what Jesus is saying. It's just that he can't give up his wealth. I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? He comes looking for eternal life, but when Jesus offers it to him, he turns it down. He chooses money over Jesus. He chooses now 
over forever. It seems like a crazy bargain. So why does he do it? Well, we should probably know. You see, Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. You might not personally feel very rich because we know lots of people who are more rich than we are. We're living in the western suburbs where the median house price is less than half that of the inner suburbs. And yet by global standards, we are incredibly rich. We have food in the refrigerator, clothes on our back, a roof over our head, a place to sleep. That makes us wealthier than 75% of the world. It said that if you have money in the bank or in your wallet, some spare change in a a dish somewhere in your house, then you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. I mean, we have amazing toilets. We are so wealthy. And all of this can become dangerous because we're blind to that. See, money can make us self-reliant. Have you ever heard those wonderful stories of people discovering God's faithfulness? They get to the point where they have nothing and then they turn in trust to God and he supplies their needs. It's an amazing thing. They they discover God's goodness, his, his generosity to them, but we probably haven't experienced it because we've never needed it. We've never gotten to that point perhaps. I mean, you could leave your house right now with nothing but your credit card and you'd be fine. Now, we can be thankful for this, but we often forget to be. More often, this kind of wealth makes us self-reliant and self-confident. This is my money that often I made this possible, and so God is pushed out of the picture. That's why money can be so dangerous. It makes us self-reliant, and it also makes us selfish. Uh, You'll often hear from someone who goes overseas how incredibly generous poor people can be. I've had friends who visit shanty towns or slums or humble little villages somewhere in Asia perhaps and places where people have almost nothing and yet whatever they do have, they're willing to give away. They'll, They'll share it. How is that? I think it's because they have little. You see, wealth and possessions have this kind of weight, a gravitational pull, and the less you have of it, the less you're held by it, the more willing you are to give it away. And so what about us? I said before that we're wealthier than almost anyone, and I gave you those little stats, but you've heard them before, and they don't hit home because that's just how we live. These are the basics, and we want more. We expect more. We covet more. You see, actually, we're just like this rich young ruler. We can surely understand his scenario. We have all of this stuff. And so imagine God asked us to give it all away. How hard would that be? And so we need to listen to what Jesus says here, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus then asking us to give everything away today? He could be, but I actually suspect he's not. You see, Jesus asked this man to sell everything, but we don't actually see this anywhere else in the Gospels. There's lots of warnings about wealth in the New Testament, but this is the only time that such a drastic remedy is recommended. In fact, next week we'll see Jesus encounter another rich man, Zacchaeus, who repents and ends up giving away a whole bunch of his wealth, but he's never told that he has to give it all away. Uh, It's also not given as a condition of repentance for others. In Luke 3, John the Baptist tells people you need to give, make, uh, show uh, the fruit of repentance, bear fruits in keeping with that. They're told to be generous, not to be greedy, but no one is asked to give away everything. And so while Jesus is very clear with this man that he needs to give up his money, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule for everyone. There is, however, a principle here 
that is. You see, there's another level to Jesus' cross-examination of this man. He goes through the Ten Commandments, but you'll notice that he leaves half of them out. He does the last six, but not the first four. The second half of the Ten Commandments focuses on uh, human relationships, how we should honour and protect life, be fair and honest in our dealings with other people and be faithful to our spouse. The first four, though, are all about how we relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols of God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Worship him in the right way. It's all about putting God first. And that ultimately is what the man does not do. Colossians 3 says that covetousness is idolatry, the worshipping of something other than God. And that's what Jesus has a problem with. See, his problem is not so much Uh, with money. Money itself is not wrong. There's lots of rich people in the Bible, Abraham, Lot, Joseph. Money can be used for good things. We know that Jesus's ministry was supported by several wealthy people. In Acts 16, Lydia supports the Apostle Paul on his missionary travels. So money itself is not the problem. The problem is when money becomes a god, when we prioritize it over God and put it before God. That's what this man was doing. When Jesus asked him to give up his money, he also asked him to follow him, but his money stops him. Jesus gives him a choice. It's either me or your money, and the man chooses his money. That's what Jesus has a problem with, and that's what he confronts in the man, but he'll also confront something similar in us. You see, we too have gods that come between us and God. It might be money or it might be something else. Whatever it is, it rivals God in our hearts. It can threaten and stop us from following him. Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, describes an idol this way. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now, it might be power. It might be approval, reputation. It might be control. It might be achievement. It might even be your morality. It could be a relationship. What's particularly tricky is the fact that often these things aren't obviously wrong. You can idolize your family or your kids, for instance. It's not wrong to care about these things, but they're revealed as idols when you can't live without them. Timothy Keller again, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's what the rich man had with his money. He couldn't imagine a life without it. What is it for you? What is it that you can't live without? If Jesus was to come to you and say, give up this and follow me, What would that be, and would you be willing to give it up? There's lots of things that could be a contender for me. One of the big things I have is comfort and leisure. I want to be comfortable. My dreams are about imagining myself sitting in a cosy room reading or watching sport. or They're all about comfort, leisure, peace, no worries, and I hate the thought of giving that up, of having to sacrifice any of that for others even for God. You might resonate with that, or it might be something else. Perhaps there's something else that you love, that you crave, the thing that makes life life for you, and yet it's 
killing you. That's what Jesus says. You see, as Keller puts it, a counterfeit God is a counterfeit God, a fake God that's promising you life but actually taking it away. Take my idol of comfort. How often does it deliver? Now, often I think about my perfect day off. I'll get up. I'll watch sport. I'll have lots of junk food. I'll have a me day all by myself. But it doesn't work. The cat gets me up too early. It's a stupid game. I feel bloated after too much Cadbury. I feel restless and frustrated. And I even start to put pressure on my leisure. You must fulfil me. You've got to be perfect. But I can't handle that pressure. So I become more and more dissatisfied. The more I seek my comfort, the more elusive it becomes. And in the process, I become selfish. I block out everyone else. Everyone must serve my God as well. Maybe you've seen it somewhere else. Maybe it's been in a relationship. You want someone. You crave them. You can't bear to lose them. And so you do. The closer you pull them in, the more they pull away. Or you're so determined to have a relationship that you accept something that's destructive and not good for you. These are counterfeit gods, gods that promise much but fail to deliver. In fact, Keller calls them a monster because it's destroying you. It offers life, but it ends up taking it away. And we hold on to it desperately. As another writer puts it, we're like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, cradling our precious even as it's draining us of life. We see that in this man as well. He has the choice. Follow Jesus or keep his money. We have the same choice, follow Jesus or keep our idol. So what will we choose? This is always a hard question for us to consider. And perhaps to help us, we need to understand why God is asking us to do this. See, God has this glorious plan for our lives a plan for transformation and joy and fulfilment that will reach every part of our being. We were made in his image, made to find all of our joy in him and the things that he gives us, and sin has disrupted that. So God has come to restore us, to transform our minds, to rewire our souls and our deepest desires, and then renew our bodies. But for that to happen, he needs all of us, every part of us, He's not asking us to do anything or make ourselves worthy of him. He's just asking us to give him everything, and he'll take it from there. He's asking us to make ourselves available, to surrender to his grace and power, to allow him to be God, so to speak. Of course, God is sovereign, but he's asking us to give our lives over to him so that he can rule them. But for this to work, for God to be God in our lives, We have to get rid of the other gods. For this man, it was money, and so Jesus asked him to get rid of it. One writer puts it, The Lord required the man to lay down the things of this world so that he might have Christ. Christ is too big a God to have him in our hands and hold on to the world as well. Christ displaces all the world's treasures so that he alone will be adored, trusted, and obeyed. This is hard to make that choice because it feels like we're losing ourselves. But the reassurance is that we're gaining so much more. We're gaining who we were made to be. And we're gaining even more than that. 
Just look at the end of this passage, verse 28. Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Good old Peter, always <laughs> piping up. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. When you choose to follow God, you will give up things, but you will gain things as well. Jesus asks us to give up everything to follow him and promises that he will give us more back. Maybe you've seen this. You've seen the bad idols replaced with good things. And you've seen the the things that are almost like good idols, like family or children, and you've seen God transform them into something better as you worship him. You see, it's fascinating how you gain the things you wanted, but in a different way. You have family now, but it's bigger. You have the physical family that God has given you, but you also love them in a new way now. You're freer. And on top of that, you have this spiritual family that God has prepared for you. You have things like money, perhaps, but it no longer has you. You enjoy the blessing of giving because it's more blessed to give than to receive. As Hudson Taylor, the great missionary in China, gave gave away two-thirds of his income. He wrote, The less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. So I just want to encourage us as we finish up. Let's trust God. It's not always an easy life following him, but it is the best life. It might be that we give things up and we don't always feel like we're seeing these great riches that Jesus is talking about here. But he is generous. He's saving us from our monsters. He's giving us more than we can imagine, both now and into eternal life. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we read this passage and we are always challenged by it. We see that you demand everything from us and we may resist that. Please, God, forgive us for that. Help us to give ourselves to you. And thank you that when we do that, you fill us with more than we can imagine. Lord, may we leave behind the things that would hold us back. May we get rid of the counterfeit gods and experience the real thing, you in all your fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.